And so we're in Romans this morning. Big surprise, uh, if you're new here, we have been going through the book of Romans now. For, this will be our sixth week, and we have m- made it to Romans chapter 3 and 4. We'll be in uh, chapter 3, verses 20, through chapter 4, verse 25 this morning. And um, so last week, we saw God, how God views humanity through different categories than we often do. We tend to look at divide the world up into good people and bad people, and we have varying definitions of what that even means, depending on who you ask. But what God does is he looks at the world through in Christ and not in Christ. He flattens down all those categories we have, and he says uh, it's righteous or unrighteous. And the only way to be righteous is to be in Christ, because you will never be righteous in and of yourself. It's only in him that you are righteous, okay? That was the story last week. So this is what the Spirit through Paul wants us to understand as the foundation of why the good news is actually happy news. That no unrighteous person enters heaven and no one is righteous, therefore no one enters heaven. And then there's a big therefore or a but, which is but God, but Jesus has made a way to make us righteous. Right? That was the story last week. We're going to explore this some more this morning. That's really kind of what happens in Romans. Just so you know, you get, you get like a seed of an idea and then it gets explored and then that gets explored and that gets explored all the way to the end. All right? So we're at Romans 3.20. says, for, we actually read this last week. It says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what does Paul mean by the law or works of the law? This is, books have been written about this. I'm not going to give you a book on this this morning. I'm just going to tell you what it means, all right? There's been a lot of debate over this, but it seems that he is referring generally to the Mosaic law of our Old Testament or the Torah. Sometimes he may be referring to some specific laws, like, for example, the dietary laws or circumcision. You see him mention circumcision many times. But generally speaking, he's just talking about the Old Testament. Um, when he says the law and the prophets, that's what he means, all right? But a deeper question, which Paul dives into more deeply later in chapter 7, is what is the law for? Paul says very simply here in verse 20, the law reveals sin, but it does not make anyone righteous. So think about it this way, when you're driving down the road, and I know no one here does this, but just imagine some bad person doing this. You're driving down the road, and you're speeding, and you're over the requisite five miles per hour that we sort of all allow ourselves, and you're just going, say, 10 or 15 over because, and what do you, you know this is against the law. There is a law that says you must go the speed that's posted on the sign. And we all know this. You, this is like the first thing you learn about driving. But what do you do in your, in your mind as you're speeding down a highway? You, you justify yourself. You sort of tell little lies to yourself. You say things like, well, I'm in a hurry. I'm special. <laughs> or you say, Those, that speed limit is for people who are terrible drivers. And I am, you know, I'm a good driver and I'm in control of this car. Nothing can happen. So, yeah, that's, that's for people like this jerk in front of me who doesn't know how to drive. 
But for me, I'm the exception to this. So, so you do this thing, and you don't really think of it. You just do it, right? And so you feel justified until what happens? You get pulled over by those lights, those blue, and, those blue lights come, come on behind you, and you pull over, and you feel incensed at first. Like, I can't believe this police officer doesn't understand that I am the exception. Doesn't he know I've got places to be and I'm in control of this car? But does the state trooper care at all? He doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about your day. He doesn't care if this hurts you or helps you. He is an impassionate extension of the law. And what he does is says, all he cares about is, were you going over 65? And if the answer is yes, you get a ticket. He doesn't want to hear your story, and he doesn't care. And he doesn't think about you after he gets back in his car and he drives off, right? This is what the law does. It cuts through all of that self-justification. It says, you broke the law, and that you just did. It's a fact. This is what the law does. This is what Paul says. He says, the law reveals sin. It shows you that you have sinned, and it tells you what sin is, Okay. But what it can't do is it can't justify you. It can't get you off the hook. It can't make you a law keeper. It just tells you when you've broken the law, right? So our main text this morning is the next starts in the next verse. That's the setup. Verse 21 through 26. I love this quote from Martin Luther. He wrote this in the margin of his translation of the Bible. He said, the chief point about this scripture, this piece of scripture is the chief point in the very central place of the epistle, Romans, and of the whole Bible. Now, he's probably exaggerating a little, and I don't know if he would have said this if he knew I'd be quoting him now, but I think that's important to note, is that what we're about to read, we're going to go through it very carefully because I would say if anyone ever says to you, ask the question, what is this Christianity thing all about? What what is, boil it down for me, you got this whole big long book and I can't understand half of it, what's this all about? I would say go to this verse. This is at the heart of the matter, okay? This is at the foundation, but it's also very important for those of us who are Christians, it's very clarifying. It's like a detox of all the junk that you attach to what you think it means to follow Jesus. And it clears away all the junk and the, the toxins that work their way into our perspective on what it means to follow Jesus, and it clarifies everything. So we're going to take some real time with this this morning. So let's start. I'm going to read the whole section, and then we'll just work our way through it um, pretty carefully. All right, so starting in verse 21, it says, But now, so the but there is referring to what I just read in verse 20. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That was what we looked at last week, summarized. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, we'll talk about that word in a minute, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, that is a mouthful. By the way, that's in the Greek, that's one sentence. And your kind and generous translators have broken that up into different sentences to help you understand what in the world he's saying, all right? But it's still hard, isn't it? You have to read it like four times. But this is super important to understanding not just the book of Romans, but understanding our faith. So that's why we're going to take some time. So let's just do it verse by verse. Verse 21, he says, But now, so something new has happened that has made this current age that Paul's referring to different from the previous time of being under the law. This is a new time in history. He's putting, so imagine a timeline, and he's just put a marker down and said everything before this was one way, and everything after this is going to be a different way. So the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I already told you the law and the prophets would be basically our Old Testament. So something new has been revealed about being right with God that is out from under the law, but the Old Testament does attest to it. So this new thing doesn't fit in the old area before the flag, he puts down, but it is in continuity with it. This is a different stage of the same plan. This is why we have an Old Testament in our Bible, is that we do not disconnect from the Old Testament and say that doesn't apply to us anymore. He says, this is a new era, but it is in continuity. It's on the same timeline. It's in the same river, if you want to think of it that way, just downstream a bit from what we see in the Old Testament. And then verse 22, the beginning, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's a lot of prepositions there. He's being more specific here. He puts a qualification on what he has already said there in verse 21, that this right relationship with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It does not come through your good works or your partial adherence to the law. It doesn't come through you at all, actually. And by definition, it also doesn't come through anyone else, any other faith, any other savior any other god with a lowercase g any other faith it comes only through faith belief in christ so our world believes in believing doesn't it i mean we're big on in our culture we're big on believing everybody's good with that the problem is it's not just believing it's what you're believing in it's not how much belief you have disney doesn't work just believe, right? Oh, just believe. We put it on shirts and bumper stickers. In what? Because just believing, if you believe in the wrong thing, you're a fool. It's not the quality of your faith to begin with. It's what your faith is in. It's who your faith is in. So he says this new thing, this new righteousness revealed, God's righteousness revealed, comes not through any other thing and not just belief on its own. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, okay? He's already said a lot in just one sentence. Well, half of one sentence if you take it as it is originally. So, humanity is not a passive recipient of the righteousness of God from Jesus. It demands a response of faith, which is simply believing God. Don't overcomplicate the word faith. 
Don't overcomplicate it. It's not like, oh, trying really hard. It's not just a bunch of like good vibes. I'm sending good vibes to Jesus, therefore I'm believing him. It's just, do you believe him or not? Like, do, do, you, do you say, yeah, I believe what you say, and I believe what you did, and I believe you've made me righteous, I believe it, or I just don't believe it. You're either right or you're wrong. It's, that, it's very simple, okay? Don't overcomplicate it. But this response, it's not just Jesus dying and saying, boom, here you go, you're a Christian. There is a response of faith that is required. We must believe or not believe. The rest of verse 22 through verses 24 says, For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, that's a mouthful, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There it is again. Through what? Not through you. Through the redemption that is where? It's in Christ Jesus. So all of sin, they fall short, which is a pretty good definition of what sin is, by the way. It's just falling short of the law. The standard, so the standard is here, and you just fall short, and it kind of doesn't matter much how far short you fall, you fell short. So it doesn't matter so much if you're going, you know, a little over the speed limit or a lot over the speed limit, you still broke the speed limit, right? So you're just falling short, and that's a pretty good definition of sin. No one is, so no one is righteous. This word justified is also important, which just means declared righteous. It's a legal term. It avoids the problem of saying is righteous, meaning you do, you've obeyed the law. It just says you have been declared righteous. And you go, well, I'm not. It, when God declares it, it just is. It's just, it's just what is. And you can quibble about, well, I don't always do the best things, but Jesus says you've been declared righteous. This is justification. Declared righteous. Those who believe God, regarding the gospel, are declared righteous by God's gracious decree. The Father makes this decree on our behalf, on the basis not of you and your goodness, but on, on the basis of the redemption that is in Christ, not anyone or anything other than him. This, by definition, just eliminates every other option that we choose to self-justify ourselves. And it places it 100% in him. It eliminates the declaration that we make of ourselves quite often, which is, well, I'm a good person. And I'm sure you're a wonderful person. I'm not calling you evil or horrible or trying to insult you. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful people in this room that I think are fantastic and I want to be like at least 50% of you. Right? I'm kidding, 75%. Right, we're, we are, we're a good group of people. As far as I know, there's no serial killers sitting in this room right now. I mean, I'll allow that, that extra 25% might contain some serial killers. I'm digging a hole for myself. All right, but you get the point. Like, it's, we, we all kind of feel like I'm a good person. And so I, some of my goodness should count towards the equation of my righteousness. And Paul is trying, he's using a lot of words 
to block off every way that you might self-justify yourself and say, well, I'm a good person, or I'm not as bad as that person, or I was born into the right family, or I was born into the right church. We're the best church, so, I mean, shouldn't that count for something? And then you just sort of go down, and he says, nope, 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 nope. No other God, no other Jesus, no other course of redemption is available to you. It is only in Christ Jesus. It has been decreed over you, not earned by you. Your salvation is a decree. It is a declaration. Like, get that. Like, define your redemption not as a thing that you have done or even a thing that you possess in and of yourself. It is a, first and foremost, a declaration by God over you. That's different, isn't it? You just have to submit to it. The question is, do you believe him? That's it. Do you believe him or not? And then verse 25 says, whom Jesus, meaning to whom that pronoun is referring to Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So what does that word propitiation mean? I would make you say it, but I think it would make you stutter and you'd embarrass yourself. I have to practice it propitiation there's just a lot of p's in there what does that mean paul uses a very rare greek word he kind of does that sometimes hilasterion that can be translated a couple of ways the esv and the niv i'm reading the esv here renders it that word propitiation a more literal and maybe awkward in english translation would be god displayed publicly as the mercy seat through faith by his blood now, what in the world is a mercy seat? I mean, I haven't encountered a mercy seat personally in my life as a modern-day American. But the mercy seat, there's actually a lot of scripture about this. It's a very specific thing. It's not, and in Paul's using it as a metaphor, yes, but it is a thing, okay? This is, the mercy seat was the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was the place where the atonement blood was sprinkled on behalf of the people by the high priest in the Old Testament temple. It's also, interestingly enough, it was where God would meet with Moses and Aaron and the early representatives of the people of Israel. And I've, in my notes, I've got a list of scriptures you can go look. It's a really fun little Bible study to do. It's just read all the scriptures that talk about the mercy seat. And if you start you know, at the beginning and work your way up to the New Testament, you just get a story. It all becomes a story of our redemption and what Jesus did. So Paul is using a very powerful metaphor here that would have meant a lot to the Jewish people. They would have immediately understood what he meant by mercy seat. Because covering the Ark of the Covenant was this golden lid resting between the golden cherubim with their outstretched wings. There's this golden slab, and this is where the representatives of the people would meet with God. And it was there that the blood would be sprinkled on the annual day of atonement. The sin price, the blood, the death itself, poured out on the seat that God named mercy. And so imagine this shiny golden lid stained with years and years of blood trickling down. You can never wash off because year after year the high priest comes in after making a sacrifice on the behalf of the people for their sins. 
and sprinkles his blood on this place that represented the very manifested, the revealed presence of God. The mercy seat was the physical location of atonement and redemption. And Paul just called Jesus the mercy seat. You see that? So Paul takes all of that understanding of year after year, this sacrifice where everyone sees the cost of their sin right in front of them. They see it, they smell it, they experience it every year. And he pulls all of that in and he says, that is Jesus. Jesus is the physical location of your redemption and your meeting with God. It's, he is not only the seat, but he is the blood sprinkled on it. He is both the sacrifice and the great high priest, as Hebrews puts it. Hebrews 9 will tell us at this time it would not be the blood of rams that would be poured out on the mercy seat, but it would be the blood of Christ. Christ is both the once and for all mercy seat, and he is the once and for all sacrifice. Paul can say a lot in just a couple of words. <laughs> it's a beautiful picture. Verses, the end of verse 25 through verse 26 closes this section. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in the age prior to the cross, God had withheld judgment for sin, at least full judgment for sin. This is really, if you ever wondered how people before the cross got to heaven, this is how, okay? God withheld full judgment. He would punish sin, but it was, if you think he was, he was hard on people, he was not as hard as the sin called for, okay? The law could never impart God's righteousness to people, so God had to withhold his justice for those sins until Christ could bear them at the cross. So think of this as a kind of sin bank account. And he's taking that sin and he's putting it in the account and he's holding it. He's being really patient until Jesus comes and dies and all of that sin, past sins, get put on him and future sins get put on him. The redemption of Christ flows in both directions on that timeline, forward and backwards. And this way, God can be both his just and the justifier. Now, that might be an odd phrase to you if you've never thought about it before. But think about this. God is holy beyond measure. Whatever you think perfection is, he's infinitely more than that. So just try to imagine the ultimate perfection, the ultimate flawlessness in a being. And he is greater than whatever that is. Because your imagination cannot comprehend how holy he actually is. He is not only perfect, but he is the definition of perfection. If you don't know him, you don't know true perfection. His holiness sets him apart from anything that is not him. Anything that transgresses against his holiness is a supreme kind of blasphemy, and this is what humanity has done. Remember Romans chapter 1. I don't want to keep referring to it constantly like a beating drum, but that's, that's his description. So here's this holy, loving generous, merciful, gracious God who creates out of an abundance of his joy and glory and says, I'm going to make these people. And these, I, he came up with the idea of people, and then he says, they're going to, they're going to reflect something of who I am. 
I'm going to put a, 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 an image of myself in them so they look like me. And I'm going to make them to, to reflect my glory back to me and worship me. It's going to be awesome. And then these creatures from the dirt lift their stiff necks to heaven and shake their fists and say, I'll, I'll take it from here. I'll breathe, breathe your air. I'll live your life. I'll use this body you made and take your image in me and distort it and make, try to recreate myself in my own image and live in my own way. And so how is this holy God supposed to just let that go? Like, think about a judge, just an earthly judge, just a local judge here in North Carolina. And he has a case before him when someone has committed some heinous crime, murdered a family, okay? Some, some crime that we would all agree is heinous and terrible. And it has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt in court that this guy did the deed. He has confessed to it and he is, has no remorse. And he says, I will do it again if you let me out. And the judge says, you know, I'm a merciful judge. Tell you what, I don't want to be mean, so you can go. No one would say he's a good judge. We would all say that guy is the worst, most wicked judge I have ever seen. Get him out of there because he's not doing his job. He's not a good judge. He's a bad judge. He may be merciful, but he's not a good judge. And Paul is answering that question about God, because how can God let anything go and still be just? How can God be just and the justifier? How can God say to us who are bad people and declare of us that we are righteous, how can he and still be called a just and good God? That's the question. Well, the answer to that question is Jesus. So he declared we are we are the murderer. We are the blasphemer. And sometimes we're good people, but the truth of the matter is we do not acknowledge God. We do not worship him as our creator. We don't do it. And he says, I'll take all that wrath that was not just for you, but for all of the people that came before you and all the people that will come after you. All those offenses when my creation turned against me, and I will put it on Jesus, the mercy seat. So justice is satisfied, and then I can declare you, the unrighteous, to be righteous. I'll take the righteousness of Christ, and I will declare it to be yours. I will, as he did with Abraham, he said, I count it to you as righteousness. Often when people object to the justice or the wrath of God, it's because they don't understand how holy God is. They don't understand what an offense or sin is. It's not that they're just prideful. It's that they look at God and they don't know. They just, why can't he just be magnanimous because he's a good judge? And we're in the murderer's seat. And so he declares us right. This is why it's good news. Romans 4 uses Abraham. I kind of brought him up already. I jumped the gun a little bit. Romans 4 uses Abraham as an example of what Paul's been explaining. This would have been a very familiar example to them. Here's this guy who we know is righteous. He believed God. He trusted God. 
He, God gave him a promise. He believed him, and he said, I'm going for it. I'm going to follow him. And he, Abraham was a messy guy. He, along the way, he, he, he would wander off and do some really dumb things. I can't believe he stayed married. But he did. But God says he's righteous. The scripture says he's righteous. Paul makes a clear theological case in chapter 4 that Abraham was justified by faith just like we are, even though he lived and died long before the cross of Christ and even before circumcisions were done, which is the interesting point. Abraham was declared righteous retroactively from the cross backwards to him because Abraham simply believed God. And this is where I want to land this morning. He simply believed God. That's it. One of my favorite examples of this, other than Abraham, no offense to Paul, all right? But my favorite examples is the thief on the cross. It's fantastic. Let's read this very quickly as we close. It says, this is Luke 23, 39 to 43. This is at the crucifixion. So picture three crosses, Jesus and two criminals, okay? They're all being tortured to death in the worst possible way Rome at the time could figure out. And this is what it says, starting in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, him being Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Quote, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. The law has spoken. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, tell you today you will be with me in paradise. Alistair Begg has this fantastic sermon about this. You may have seen it where he paints this picture of the, the criminal on the cross. He dies and he gets to heaven. He's greeted by an angel who's like, what are you doing here? Right? He goes, I don't know. The guy on the middle cross said I could come. Right? That's all he's got. It's just fantastic. He doesn't know anything about anything that we just read from Paul. It hasn't been written yet. He doesn't understand. He hasn't heard the teachings of Jesus. He's only been a criminal and has died. We don't even have his name. He's not even named here. He is such a blip on the on the, the, the timeline of history that all we know about him 2,000 years later is he was a bad dude. He confessed it himself. He said, I deserve to be on this cross. I am a criminal. You know it, and I know it, and I'm here for good reason, and this guy is not. And that simple revelation of I believe Jesus was enough to put him, move him from unrighteous, worthy of death on the cross, to righteous and in the kingdom of heaven in the next breath. And so he walks into heaven having no Bible studies, no Sunday school lessons, no time sitting and listening to the word and hearing the gospel explained and explicated and, and exemplified in people around you. He had none of that. All he had was simple belief. I believe the man on the middle cross. And that pushed me eternally into a different location.
the mercy seat. I threw myself on the mercy seat. And that's all I know. And that's all, the only credential I have standing here at the gate of heaven is that he said I could come. That's it. He broke the law, he believed, and he died. That was the sum total of his life. So the question remains for you, have you believed God like Abraham did? See how clarifying that is? Have you believed God? Do you see what the criminal on the cross saw? Do you at least have as much revelation as he had? Where he looks at Jesus and he looks at himself and he looks at his criminal buddy and he says, I deserve to be here. He does not. He's perfect. Leave him alone. And that's enough faith. Have you seen that? Have you met with God at the mercy seat? If you have not, I want to just encourage you this morning that this is the only faith that's required of you. Everything after this is the result of this faith. You don't have to clean yourself up. The criminal didn't have to climb off the cross and have six months of doing the right thing before Jesus would accept him into his club. He didn't have to learn a whole bunch of theology before he was accepted into Christ's family. He didn't have to do, he didn't have a chance to do all of those things. All he needed was faith. And a lot of people get upset about this. How is it that a whole lifetime of sin and corruption and criminal behavior could be wiped out at the last second? Well, that's the offense of the gospel. Is it's good news. And it's so good, it offends people that don't like good news. It offends the world because it's too good. It's too joyous. You should have to pay for your sins. Well, somebody's going to pay, but it doesn't have to be you. And so I just want to encourage you, just believe him. <laughs> he's, he's looking you in the eye, and he's saying, this is what I did for you. I paid it. Why are you still paying the price? I paid it. Come to the mercy seat where the blood has been sprinkled once and for all. You do not have to live outside of this free, gracious gift of redemption. That is Christianity. That is it. That is the door into the family of God. So I want to pray, but I want to start by just confessing together what we believe and using these scriptures to, to do it. I think confession is an interesting thing because we confess just means to agree. So we say to God what is true, right? But there's this thing that happens when we do things like this. It's why we do the Apostles' Creed every few weeks. It's because we need to hear ourselves say it. it we're saying it to him, but the benefit flows to us. God doesn't need to be reminded of what he says is true. We need to be reminded. And there's something about saying it together, hearing your own voice say, this is what I believe. And so I would just like us to do that. Together. Why don't we stand up? I want to read that, just a portion of that, Romans 3, 23 to 26. Maybe we'll have it on a slide. Ah, look at that. So let's all just repeat this out loud. Uh, now listen, if you don't believe this, 
don't pretend like you do. All right? Don't fake it. That's the only downside of doing this sort of thing. Only say this. Don't lie. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to God. If you don't believe this, don't say it. But if you do believe this, repeat this after me. I believe all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God, I pray right now that those words and the truths that they represent would be driven deeply into our hearts. God, I pray for anyone here who is a believer, a follower of Jesus, and has become clouded in their thinking, futile in their thinking about what it means to follow Jesus. God, that you would place this um, as like a tree in the soil of their heart. I believe Jesus. I believe what he has done, and I believe what he has said. And God, I pray for anyone here who is not a follower of Jesus, God, that they would be struck right now in their heart by the Holy Spirit that these words are true, that this is the truth, and that seed of faith will be planted in their heart right now so that they too could call themselves a follower of Jesus. And would you do that this morning in all of us? In the name of Jesus, amen.